The reigns of the Thuthmoses, with their aggressive foreign policies and their genius for organization, promoted a steady increase in the power and prosperity of Egypt. By the time Amenophis III came to the throne, this growth had reached its culmination. Two Memphis and Thebes flocked the clever artisans of the Near East and Africa, the lapidaries, metalworkers, embroiderers and musicians, the unskilled laborers, the refugees and prisoners of war who were employed as gardeners, temple serfs and other menial capacities. More extensive opportunities for a better life in Egypt were avidly seized by the spearmen and charioteers of Palestine and Syria, the infantry of Libya, the shock troops and police of Nubia and Sudan. Exotic raw materials were imported into Egypt in much more significant quantities because of tribute or state trading. The horses, cattle, fine woods, lapis lazuli, silver and bronze of Asia, the oxen of Libya, the hides, pelts, ostrich feathers, ebony, ivory, apes, incense, gums and resins, minerals and gold of Africa. The finished products of these lands were just as valuable. The iron dagger blades and red and purple colored gold of Mitanni, the lapis lazuli jewelry of Babylon, the gold and silver ritons, ewers and bowls of the Aegean, the metalwork, ivory oil horns and combs, the embroidered garments, leatherwork and chariots of Syria, the weapons, ebony furniture and ivory implements of Kush. All this wealth pouring into a cosmopolitan society that followed the court's fashions, with its large entourage of foreign princesses and their suites, affected traditional Egyptian culture, loosening its classical, tight-lipped utterances, softening lines, intensifying colors, and injecting a new and nervous vitality. The utterly different surface that Egyptian culture wears in the New Kingdom must owe nearly everything to its broader and more intimate contacts with the world of the Amorites, Hurrians, Indo-Europeans and Pre-Hellenes during the Late Bronze Age. After the Hyksos period, Egyptian civilization lost many of its homegrown features and adopted those of other East Mediterranean lands. The god-king became a Homeric champion, an athlete and chariot fighter, and a leader of his people in war and peace. His paladins and courtiers take on the character of the new class of Marianu that dominated society in Asia. Foreign wives, slaves, and even officials brought their influence to bear at the very center of government, and probably account for that pagan delight in personal greatness and pride in worldly success, which are such novel features of the age, and are so attractively expressed in the painted scenes of former glory on the walls of the Theban tomb chapels. The reign of Tuthmosis IV, followed by the long and settled reign of Amenophis III, with its sophisticated patronage by the king and his officials, encouraged the emergence of two or three generations of painters, sculptors, architects and artisans whose technical abilities were fully equal to the demands that were now placed upon them. At no other period of Egyptian history is so consistently high a standard achieved in artistic expression from colossal statues to minutely carved jewels, from the ubiquitous stone statuary to the small figurines in wooden ivory, from the sublimity of the Luxor temple at one extreme to the new charm of the trim-painted mud shrine at the Wadi Essebua at the other. A widespread zest for luxury, no doubt stimulated by the tastes of civilized Asia, 
is just as apparent in the applied arts of the period. In the products of glass and faience makers, ivory carvers, bronze workers, lapidaries and weavers, if some descriptive tag has to be tied to this era of Amenophis the Magnificent, then the age of opulence seems the most appropriate. The cattle hunt scarab suggests that the king may have been living in Upper Egypt in his second regnal year, probably at Western Thebes, where later in his reign he certainly had an enormous palace at Medinet Habu, the modern name of which may enshrine some echo of that of his great minister Amenophis son of Harpu. The site of this vast structure, more like a town or compound than a single building, covers about 80 acres and has been dug over by various excavators besides generations of local natives grubbing for what they could pick up. The Metropolitan Museum expedition has explored enough of the ruins to show that the palace, which first bore the name of the House of Nebmart Re shines like Aten, but was also called the House of Rejoicing from the time of the king's first jubilee, is but the nucleus of an aggregation of rambling constructions facing vast courts and built as occasion demanded with no relation to each other except propinquity. All the buildings in this palace city were mainly constructed of sun-dried mud brick. The roofs were made of wooden rafters, to the underside of which matting was attached and plastered with straw-bound mud. In the larger rooms, which like those at Amana doubtless rose above the general roof level, the ceilings were supported on wooden columns resting on limestone bases. Some of the door sills were also of stone, as were the draining slabs in the bathrooms with their stone-lined dados to prevent damage by splashing. Ceilings, walls and even floors of the more critical rooms were decorated with painted scenes on thin washes of lime plaster in a freer, more sketchy and lively style than that employed in the contemporary tomb paintings. Some imagination is necessary to see these scanty and devastated ruins as they would have appeared in their heyday. But when complete, the gaily painted mudbrick rooms would have had wooden fittings as doors, door frames and window grills, mostly painted but some gilded and doubtless inlaid with colour faience to give the name and titles of the king and his principal queen. With gilded ebony and cedarwood chests, beds, stools and chairs, rushwork stands decorated with floral bouquets, leather cushions in blue and red checkerwork and their other furnishings, the interiors must have been a flickering glow of many intense colours, softened by the subdued light from the clerestory windows. Of this oriental splendour, all that has survived in quantity are fragments of tableware. Nevertheless, an idea of what the contents of these palaces once were like can be gleaned from a study of the articles of domestic furniture which were buried with Yuya and Tuyu and Tutankhamun. All close relatives of the king must have spent some part of their lives within the precincts of the Malkata Palace. Besides this house of rejoicing at Thebes, it is almost certain that Amenophis had another and perhaps more important palace in Memphis and subsidiary residences such as a hunting lodge at Medinet Algurab in the Fayum. A causeway connected the Theban palace to a funerary temple dedicated to Amun and the king's mortuary cult, which rose about a mile to the north and must have been much the largest in the row of such monuments that by now fringed the cultivation on the west of Thebes. 
It was first used as a convenient quarry a century and a half after its founder's death, thus making a mockery of his boast that it was established forever and to all eternity. Almost all that is left of it are the two lonely quartzite colossi of the king, which initially measured nearly 70 feet in height and flanked by the entrance to the Nephilim temple. In 1896, Petri, excavating in the ruins of the nearby funerary temple of Mineptah of the following dynasty, 1237-1219 BE, found a grey granite stella over 10 feet high installed originally in the temple of Amenophis III, usurped by the later king. It described some of the mighty works that Amenophis had made for Arnum-Re in Thebes and Nubia, including the mortuary temple at Medinet Habu, the third pylon of the temple of Arnun at Karnak, the Luxor temple, a Maru or viewing temple at western Thebes, and a temple at Sulb some 50 miles north of the third cataract of the Nile. The description of the mortuary temple in this stela must also show the appearance of the other structures enumerated. It was built, we read, in fine white sandstone, embellished with gold throughout. The floor of its sanctuary was covered with silver and all its portals with electrum. It was made very broad, long, and adorned with an excellent stela embellished with gold and colored stones. There were many statues of the king in excellently worked granite of elephantine, hard red quartzite, and every fine stone. They rose in their height more than the heavens and were beautiful to the sight, like the aten or disk of the sun at its rising. Its flagstaves were plated with electrum, the Nile filled its sacred lake, its offices were staffed with male and female servitors together with foreign captives, and its storerooms were full of countless treasures. At Karnak, while Arninophis added little apart from a tremendous triumphal gate, the third pylon to the Temple of Arnun, he built on an ancient foundation a temple to the older Theban god Mont in precincts to the north of the Amun complex. But of this undersized now remains except the ground plan. Another ruined edifice, dedicated by Arninophis to Mut, the consort of Arnun, lies a quarter of a mile to the south in the region around a crescent-shaped lake known as Ashru, the Pool of the Lion. Here, Mut took the form of the Memphite lion-headed goddess of war, Sekhmet, and was represented by hundreds of granite statues showing her seated as well as standing. Many of these enormous statues, usurped by later kings, have survived, and nearly every Egyptian collection has an example. However, the most impressive of the Ban monuments of Amenophis III must be sought not at Karnak, but in the Southern Sanctuary the ancient name for Luxor. Here rises the magnificent temple to the Theban trinity, Arnun, Mut, and their offspring, the child Khons, which the king's architect, another Arnun Hopte, was still building in year 35. Around its sanctuary were rooms for storing the emblems, garments, vessels, and offerings used in the cult, and in a columned hall flanking the vestibule is a representation of the theogamy or divine birth of the king, in which appear all the elements seen in the well-preserved reliefs of Hatshepsut in her mortuary temple at Deir al-Bari. Here, however, Amun enacts the part of Tuthmosis IV, and it is the king's mother, Mutemwia, whom Isis and Knum lead to the birth chamber. 
The temple was once gorgeously decorated with gold, silver, lapis lazuli and coloured opaque glasses and furnished with sculptures in hard and soft stones. But only a few dispersed and usurped examples of the statuary bear some witness to its former magnificence. Despite its ruinous state, however, and the alterations it has suffered, its grandeur is still impressive, particularly at sunrise, the moment of the temple's awakening, when the Theban luminescence gives an almost translucent effect to the stone. The contrast between the rows of clustered papyrus bud columns where the diagonal shadows fall thick and the broad areas of light in the open courts, the excellent balance of the proportions between the primary structure and the soaring colonnade with its huge cominform capitals, clarify that within the rigid requirements of the Egyptian temple as cosmological myth translated into stone, Amenophis III has called upon the services of a great architect whose work, however, was left unfinished in the next reign when he was disgraced for reasons which we can only surmise. Besides these works at Thebes, significant buildings were erected in most of the large centers of Egypt during the long reign of Amenophis III. At Memphis, he founded a second mortuary temple for his posthumous cult as a northern pendant to the vast structure at Medinet Habu. He also built temples at Athribis and Bubastis in the delta, and a charming peripteral kiosk for his second jubilee in the island of Elephantine, as the traditions of his dynasty demanded. The ruins of his temple at Sulb, an outpost of his empire in Sudan, are still considerable. Nearby is a companion temple at Sedeinga, built for Queen Tie, identified with the goddess Hathor. These works were notable for the great use of opulent materials, the artistry's exceptional quality and their colossal size. In his reign, statuary appears on an enormous scale in significant quantities. Whether all this urge towards the colossal expresses the king's desires, or whether it was but a manifestation by his architects and artists and officials of their pride in the power and importance of Egypt, of which their pharaoh was lord, must be left to the psychologists, but that there is an insistence upon the divinity of the pharaoh during the reign of Amenophis III is obvious. His birth has other precedents and can be overstressed, but there is little doubt he was worshipped as a statue at Sulb, Memphis, Hierakompolis and Thebes during his lifetime. At Sulb, even he adores his image. At Sedeinga, Queen Tie was worshipped as the local patroness. This increase in the aura of majesty may have been indebted to antiquarian research, to a harking back to a remoter past when the pharaoh had been the Egyptians' most extraordinary god. It also indeed owed much to the steady growth during the dynasty of the idea of a single universal and supreme divinity of which the king was at once the offspring and the incarnation. Throughout the reign of Amenophis III, Queen Tie as the chief wife of the king was never challenged, despite the host of other queens, probably because she had borne several sons, including the heir apparent. Her name frequently accompanies her husband is in ceremonial inscriptions, and her figure, albeit usually on a smaller scale, attends his on many of his statues and reliefs. After the death of Amenophis III, King Tushrata of Mitanni addressed a letter to her 
KN number 26, asking that the good relations that had existed between Egypt and his country during the reign of her husband should be continued under her son. She was given the title of heiress, which was claimed only by the eldest surviving daughters of pharaohs by their chief consorts. Apart from her deification at Sidiinga during her lifetime, her cult was maintained for many years after her death. A funerary estate of hers at Thebes was administered by an influential priesthood in Ramesside times, and another estate in Middle Egypt by the 10th century BC at least. Her name survives today in the town's name of Tanta, and in that of the village of Adaya near Sidiinga. Amenophis III had other native and foreign wives, but their names exist only in one or two instances. Queens Henut, Nebetnuhe, and Princess Tiaha are known from fragments of their canopic jars that appeared on the market about this century and may be dated to his reign. However, such as the mortality rate of the ancient world that 15 years after the king's death, it would appear that no direct descendants remained from his vast progeny. During his reign, Amenophis III was served by loyal and competent officials he rewarded with valuable gifts, including gold decorations and magnificent tombs in western Thebes. Foremost among his henchmen was Amenophis, son of a certain Hapu, a man of no account, so we are asked to believe, from the delta town of Arthribis, whose relatives would rise to great power in Thebes and Memphis. Closely related to him, and also hailing from the delta, was the king's high steward in Memphis, another Amunhotpe, who held several important offices including controller of works in Memphis, treasurer and overseer of the double granary of Egypt. He, too, claims that his parents were relatively humble, but he studied as a scribe, and his proficiency led to his appointment as one of the personal secretaries of the king. Like his namesake and near relation, he served as a scribe of the elite troops, which resulted in his appointment as a treasurer, steward, and architect. In the latter capacity, he handled the erection of the mortuary temple of Amenophis III in Memphis, which doubtless was an impressive and splendid structure, though nothing of it can be identified today. His half-brother, Ramosi, who held the position of vizier of Upper Egypt, has a tomb at Thebes, one of the showplaces for tourists since its restoration by Sir Robert Mond in 1923 to 1926. He was present at the king's first jubilee, but his short official career belongs more appropriately to the next reign and below. Another Memphite, also called Amenhopte, was the northern vizier and ran in double harness with Ramosi. However, our knowledge of the court of Amenophis III and Queen Tie, sketchy, derives mainly from the Theban necropolis, where still survived the tombs of the southern officials and some of the northern officials, such as Menkepe, the mayor of Memphis. Of these, the most important is the elegantly sculptured chapels of the overseer of the granaries of Upper and Lower Egypt, Ka'em Het, and his wife, named Tie after the queen, the chief steward, Amun-en-Het called Sureru and Keruef, who was the queen's high steward. In all these tomb chapels appears a representation of the owner reliving his finest hour on earth in the royal presence during the festivities that marked the king's jubilees. 
The reliefs in these tombs and others of the same period are notable for their exquisite drawing and detail and precise and accomplished carving. To our eyes, they are suffused with the bloom of ripeness that trembles on the verge of decay, since with our hindsight, we can see them as the last development of their kind in the Theban necropolis. The same sunset glow plays over the paintings in glue tempera that decorate the walls of the contemporary tomb chapels, which in the light of what is following, seem to express a nostalgic joy in the earthly life which is past, rather than an acceptance of the eternity which is to come. They show the same assured drawing as the reliefs, but are gay with a bright yet harmonious color. The fragments of a magnificent tomb thought to belong to a certain Neb Arnun, and now in the British Museum, and the tombs of the two sculptors and the overseer of Crown Lands, Mena, show these features at their best. However, there are other painted tomb chapels that, though even more badly damaged, have left some memorials of the rain, and it is from these and stray monuments we can glean a little idea of the careers of the king's officials. During the last decade of the reign, the significant events were the king's three jubilees held in regnal years, 30, 34, and 37. The Festival of the Said, or the Jubilee, in its essentials, rejuvenated the aging king and confirmed him in his tenure of the Nephilim throne. The locus of the event, like that of the coronation, was at Memphis and was closely bound up with the festival of the falcon death god Sokar. Some rites are represented in the tomb of Keruef, where a text suggests that thorough research was undertaken to enact the ritual in its proper form. In other ceremonies, which a text informs us were held on the west of Thebes, Amenophis III and Tie were towed in a bark along a canal like a sun through the underworld regions in the last hours of the night towards a rebirth at dawn and a triumphal re-coronation. It needs to be mentioned here that such scenes of the king in this mystery play of death and resurrection during his jubilees have been misinterpreted, wrongly in the writer's opinion, as revealing that Amenophis is shown dead and deified. Apart from such mysterious rites, there were other ceremonies in which the king had to take part during his jubilees, and a great deal of preparation had to be made for these events. New statues of the king and queen had to be fashioned for all the sanctuaries to be built to commemorate each jubilee, and we can see a sizable collection of these awaiting consecration in the damaged reliefs of Surero. New clothes, jewelry, and other equipment also had to be specially made. At the reenactment of his coronation, the king received the homage of his peoples from Egypt and from the lands of Africa and Asia, who came bearing rich gifts. Obelisks were erected at Sulb, where the temple was decorated with scenes of the first jubilee. At Thebes, in the precincts of his palace, and at Elephantine, extraordinary peripteral temples were built to commemorate the second jubilee. As tradition demanded, not only were images of the various gods brought from their cult centers to Memphis to attend the jubilee rites, accompanied by priests and officials, but the king also began a grand tour of his dominions to hold celebrations in the more important towns. These functions involved the distribution of enormous quantities of consecrated food, 
and we are fortunate in having some record of the provisions supplied at Thebes from the mass of fragmentary pottery vessels which contained meat, drink, and unguents found in the midden heaps and among the ruins of the Malkata Palace. The dockets, written on these despised fragments of pottery, have thrown considerable light on the events of the last two years of the reign. We learn from them that the king lived to the last few weeks of his 38th regnal year at least, and probably entered his 39th before he died. They also show which of his officials were active in the different years, and the relative importance of the three jubilees. Work on the sepulchre of the king must have started early in his reign. Indeed, it would seem that it had been started while he was still crown prince, since the foundation deposits outside the entrance bore Tutmosis IV's name. For his tomb, a site was chosen in the then untouched gorge which forms the western branch of the Bibonel Moloch. In this remote and desolate spot, a hypogeum was hewn, which resembled in design that of his predecessor, but in which the burial chambers lay south of their approach corridor, so penetrating further into the hillside. The first corridor is cut in three lengths, which slope rapidly down to reach a well chamber. This has its walls painted with scenes of the king in the presence of various gods. Once the well has been bridged, a two-pillared hall has entered the floor of which a steep stair leads by another corridor and an antechamber to the large pillared burial chamber with its painted astronomical ceiling and side halls. Only the broken sarcophagus lid of red granite remains in this chamber, and the rest of the tomb is a sad wreck of its former splendor, though it does not appear to have been completed. Its most remarkable features are the two large pillared halls, each with a subsidiary chamber, which lead from the main funerary hall and which some scholars have suggested were for the burials of Queens Tie and Sit Amun. The tomb was rediscovered by two engineers of Napoleon's Egyptian expedition in 1799. Various rummagers have recovered from the ruined chamber's meager wreckage of what was probably the most opulent burial ever to be deposited in the valley. The mummy of Amenophis III was discovered in the tomb of his grandfather Amenophis II in 1898 and found to have been severely damaged in antiquity by robbers who had hacked it in pieces in order to retrieve the precious amulets which protected it. Nearly all the soft tissues of the head had disappeared, but enough data remained to show that the king was about 5 feet 2 inches in height and was almost entirely bald at death, having only light hair on his temples. He had lost his upper incisors before death and another tooth just before he died. There was also evidence of alveolar abscesses, and in the last years of his life he must have suffered miserably from toothache and dental disorders. It has been inferred that his health was poor towards the end of his reign because, in year 36, Tushrata of Mitanni dispatched a statue of Ishtar to Nineveh on what was described as her second visit to Egypt, the land which she loves. It has been presumed that this was a prophylactic statue sent to cure the pharaoh of some malady, but this evidence is very slender. What his mummy reveals, however, is that the embalmers took extraordinary measures to restore to his corpse some semblance of his appearance in life by packing a mixture of resin and natron under the skin. 
This innovation was not repeated until four centuries later, when other stuffing was used to plump out the mummies of the ruling house of Thebes in Dynasty 20, 1080 to 945 BC. The embalmers who mummified Amenophis III may have taken such exceptional measures because the king, at death, was grossly obese. Several statues and relief of him in his last years show him as corpulent and elderly, though, with the traditional idealism of Egyptian court art, such portraits are discreet and restrained. The Reign of Akhenaten and its Sequel In our first chapter, we have outlined the sources that scholars have had to use for their knowledge of events during the Amarna period. Interpreting the incomplete and patchy evidence has produced a conflict of opinion about the character of Akhenaten and the history of his times. One difficulty in charting the proper sequence of events during his reign has been the paucity of dated Nephilim documents, since all period records were obliterated or doctored in Ramesid times. A few items have escaped destruction or falsification. A contemporary letter written on papyrus and dated to the king's fifth regnal year lights at Gurab still names him as Amenophis, thus giving the latest date he has used this form of nomen. On three of the significantly damaged boundary stele at Amarna, the date Year 4 has been read with difficulty and reservations. The rest are dated to Year 6. Furthermore, two have a codicil dated to Year 8. An event depicted in two tombs at Amarna, where the reception of foreign tribute is represented, is dated to Year 12. These nodal dates allow us to see that between Years 5 and 6, the king and queen changed their names, and between years 8 and 12, they altered the didactic name of their god, the Aten. Suggestions for more precise dates when these events took place will be offered below. The various changes of the name have allowed monuments to be sorted approximately into their proper sequence in the reign. But the system has to be discretion since inscriptions with early versions of the names have sometimes been altered to show the later forms. In the past, therefore, Egyptologists have been tempted to sort the monuments into some order by the number of princesses that accompany the royal pair on them. Nefertiti bore six known daughters, and as three only are depicted on the boundary stele of year 8, and all six are shown in a representation of year 12, it would seem that a rough timescale could be constructed from such an equation. Unfortunately, this argument overlooks the way the ancient Egyptian artisan worked, particularly at Amarna, where the frantic haste in which the extensive building projects were carried out and the apparent shortage of skilled workers and efficient supervisors led to anachronisms being perpetrated. It conformed to Egyptian practice if a certain number of accepted subjects for representation in relief and painting were in stock from the earlier reign and only tardily and incompletely revised by the employees, whose instinct would be to prefer a pattern which they had perfected by constant copying. Thus, although one scene of the reception of foreign tribute in year 12 shows six princesses in attendance, another version of the same subject shows only three and some scenes of the royal family worshipping the Aten with the late form of its name show only one daughter in their retinue. Therefore, the number of daughters accompanying their parents in any Amarna scene 
can do not show its date. Before discussing in the next section of this book the problems that the Amarna period has bequeathed us, we shall present in this chapter an orthodox view of the reign, primarily based upon J. H. Breasted's chapter in the first edition of the Cambridge Ancient History, since the chapter in the revised edition is not available as we write. We shall supplement it with additional information which has won some tacit acceptance in recent years. This age interpretation has influenced several non-Egyptological writers and thinkers who have helped to further the received view of Akhenaten, the Amarna period, and its aftermath. At his accession, Amenophis IV, the young and inexperienced son of Amenophis III and his chief queen Tie, inherited a problematic situation. The kingdom of Mitanni, now an ally of Egypt, was under pressure from a resurgent Hatti who was fermenting trouble among the treacherous vassal states of Syria, while nomadic bands of Hapiru freebooters were creating unrest in Palestine. The times demanded a mighty king like the conquering pharaohs of the earlier half of the dynasty, who had marched into Asia at the head of their armies and put down the insurrection and petty squabbles alike with exemplary severity. Instead, the new king appointed as his advisers his mother Tie, his chief queen Nefertiti, perhaps a woman of Asiatic birth, and a favorite priest Ai, the husband of her nurse. Instead of coming to the aid of his ally Mitanni, the young king immersed himself deeply in the philosophizing theology of the time, and in such contemplations he steadily developed ideals and purposes which make him the most remarkable of all the pharaohs and the first individual in human history. The expansion of Egypt during Dynasty 18 into a world empire had brought a new concept in Egyptian thought, and the idea was born of a unique universal god, the sun, who surveyed the whole earth and was lord of all countries, not merely Egypt. Already under Amenophis III, an old name of the material sun, the Aten or disk, had come into prominent use, and under his son, the cult of this god was rapidly expanded until it became not only the supreme deity, but the sole one as well. A new symbol depicted the Aten as a sun disk from which diverging beams radiated, each ray ending in a human hand some of them bringing the symbol of life to the nostrils of the king and queen, thus suggesting a power issuing from its divine source and putting its hand upon the world and the affairs of men. This outward symbol could have a universal significance in the foreign dominions of Egypt in a way which the old anthropomorphic or zoomorphic gods entirely lacked, and to show the imperial power of the Aten the god's expanded or didactic name was enclosed within two cartouches like those of a pharaoh, thus suggesting a supreme heavenly king. The zeal of the young pharaoh for the new cult was clear from the very first. A mighty temple to the Aten was erected at Karnak and Thebes was now called the City of the Radiance of Aten, instead of the City of Amun. The priesthood of Amun, the old god of Thebes, whose power and wealth had significantly increased during the dynasty, could not view these measures with complacency. The priests of Amun had installed the great conqueror Tuthmosis III as king, 
and they could have supplanted with one of their nominees the young dreamer who now held the throne, if Amenophis IV had not possessed great force of character and come of an illustrious line of rulers too strong to be set aside even by so powerful a priesthood. A bitter conflict then ensued in which the issue was sharply drawn between Aten and the old gods. It rendered Thebes intolerable to the king, and he broke with the old cults and made Aten the sole god in fact and thought. The priests were dispossessed, the official temple worship of the gods throughout the land was ended, and their names were erased from the monuments. Even the plural form of the word for god was obliterated. The persecution of Amun was severe. Even the cartouche of the king's father, which contained the name of the hated god, was not respected during this orgy of excision, and the name of the young pharaoh was changed from Amenophis to Akhenaten. Thebes as a residence was abandoned, and a new capital, Akhetaten, the resting place of the Aten, founded at what is now Tel Elmana in Middle Egypt. In his sixth regnal year, and shortly after changing his name, Akhenaten took up residence in his new town, which he vowed never to leave. Large palaces and temples were erected for the king, Nefertiti, Tie, and other members of the royal family. The great temple of the sun's disk, the center of the new Aten worship worldwide, was built within a vast enclosure. The royal sepulchre was hewn in the wadi that bisected the semicircle of cliffs enclosing the site in the east. The same lavish provision was made for Akhenaten's officials, whose estates were laid out on a generous scale, and whose tombs were cut in the foothills to the south and the cliffs to the north. These courtiers were not drawn from the old governing families, but were new men who claimed that they owed their advancement entirely to the pharaoh himself. It is to their tomb chapels, decorated with reliefs and containing texts in praise of the Aten and Akhenaten, that we owe our knowledge of the king's new teaching. One hymn in particular, which appears in the tomb of the priest Ai, is regarded as having been written by Akhenaten himself. The universalism of the Egyptian empire finds complete expression, with the royal poet projecting a world faith to displace the nationalism that had preceded it for twenty centuries. He based the universal rule of God upon his fatherly care of all men alike, irrespective of race or nationality, and he calls Aten the father and mother of all that he had made. Akhenaten thus grasped the idea of a world lord as the creator of nature but he likewise saw and revealed the Creator's beneficent purpose. In Akhenaten's teaching, there is a constant emphasis upon mart, truth, such as is not found before or afterward. The king permanently attached his name to the phrase, living in truth, which is not meaningless, is apparent in his delight in displaying his family life in public. He was represented with his queen and daughters on all occasions enjoying the most familiar and unaffected intercourse with them, and they were also shown participating in the temple services. His chief sculptor, Beck, claims that the king himself taught him, and the artists of his court were instructed to express what they saw. The result was a new and straightforward but beautiful realism. They caught the instantaneous postures of animal life the running hound, the fleeing quarry, the wild bull leaping in the papyrus thicket, 
for all these belonged to the truth in which Akhenaten lived. The king's person was not exempted from the laws of the new art. The artists represented Akhenaten as they saw him, not idealistic, but as he appeared to their eyes, with all his bodily deformities. Immersed in his exalted religious ideas and absorbed by his extensive building schemes at Amarna, Akhenaten allowed the empire's affairs to fall into neglect and did not realize until it was too late the necessity for drastic action. The Hittites and their collaborators had steadily eroded Egyptian influence in Syria, and a similar situation developed further south in Palestine until the Egyptian empire in Asia in effect ceased to exist. The tribute of Asia and Kush was received at Akhetaten as usual in year 12, and the pharaoh and Nefertiti and their six daughters are shown receiving it in a beautiful state, but no further imposts are recorded. It appears to be in this same year that Queen Tie paid a state visit to Akhetaten and may have helped to bring home to her son the disastrous condition in which affairs at home and abroad outside the little world of Akhetaten were drifting because of his policies, or lack of them. The people were resentful of the suppression of their old gods, and a powerful priestly party openly or covertly did all in its power to subvert his doctrines. In addition, there was unrest in the army because of his pacifist management of foreign affairs and losing the Asiatic territories. Only when the ever-deepening crisis had become severe was the king forced to face realities. A young prince, Smenkare, perhaps a younger brother, was married to the eldest daughter, Merit Aten, made co-regent and sent off to Thebes to patch up the quarrel with the priests of Amun. Nefertiti, however, appears to have been unconvinced of the need for a policy change and retired to a palace at the north end of Akhetaten, taking with her another young prince, Tutankhaten, who was married to the second surviving daughter, Anches Enpa Aten. However, within two years, Akhenaten had died in his 17th regnal year, the highest recorded on wine jar dockets found at Akhetaten. Smenkare had probably predeceased him. Tutankhaten then reigned alone for a year under the influence of Nefertiti until, with her death, the Amarna Revolution came to an abrupt end, and the way was clear for a triumphant return to orthodoxy. We know from his mummy that Tutankhaten could not have been over nine years old at his accession, and such a mere child must have been under the influence of influential advisers first Nefertiti, and then, on her death, the priest Ai, who, from being the husband of Nefertiti's nurse and master of the horse, had advanced to the position of vizier and virtual ruler of Egypt. It was doubtless by his persuasion that Akhetaten was abandoned as the residence, and the court moved back to Thebes, where the priests of Amun recovered their former ascendancy. The royal pair had to change their names to Tutank Amun and Ankes en Amun and undertake a heavy program of restoring the monuments and endowments of the old gods, particularly Amun. The Aten faith was abandoned, and Akhet Aten could decay, first to a town of squatters and then to a derelict area. A docket on a wine jar found in his tomb and dated to his regnal year 10 shows that Tutankhamun ruled for nine years. He strove to return to the status quo as it had existed in the time of Amenophis III, but died before the restoration work was far advanced. 
none of his monuments at Karnak and on most other sites above ground have come down to us bearing his name and he would have remained one of the more ephemeral pharaohs if the discovery of his tomb, the only royal burial in the Bibon al-Moloch to have survived virtually intact and crammed with treasure, had not brought him a worldwide posthumous fame. He left no sons to carry on the dynastic succession, and it was now that his widow wrote to Supiluliumus, the Hittite king, as we learn from the tablets excavated at the Hittite capital near modern Bogaz Keui in Anatolia, asking him to send one of his sons whom she would marry and so make pharaoh of Egypt. The Hittite king hesitated over this unprecedented request, but eventually dispatched Prince Zenanza, who was murdered on his way to Egypt. At that point, Supiluliumus attacked and defeated Egyptian forces in the Amki region between Lebanon and Anti-Lebanon. In the meantime, I had seized the throne of Egypt, and as the new pharaoh is represented in the wall paintings in the tomb of Tutankhamun, performing the last rites for his predecessor, for whose burial he must have been responsible. King I ruled for a short period only, and was succeeded by General Harem Hab, who had risen to eminent authority under Tutankhamun, being appointed the king's deputy. He had the support of the army and the priesthood of Amun as well, and he had only to appear in Thebes to be recognized by the city god as the legitimate heir and crowned king, while his wife, a certain Mutnojme, was made queen. Harem Hab's ability to administrate public affairs was evident in his unflagging efforts to restore order and prosperity to the state. An edict which he issued, but which has survived only in a damaged state, shows that he was concerned to put down abuses which had appeared in central and local government during the preoccupation of Akhenaten with religious reforms, and which had resulted in the populace's oppression particularly the poor, and the commandeering of their goods and services under all kinds of pretexts. The arbitrary exactions, which had also impoverished the state coffers, are enumerated and savage penalties prescribed in each case for breaches of the law. He took steps to stamp out corruption in the judiciary and collusion between dishonest inspectors and rapacious tax collectors. These measures must have gone far to restore material prosperity to Egypt and authority to the crown, but he also undertook works to improve the morale of the people riven by the religious dispute, whose troubles would seem to them as much due to alienated gods to greedy and honest men. Harem Hab repaired and refurbished the temples in the entire land, re-consecrating them, re-establishing their daily offerings and endowments, equipping them with gold and silver vessels, and appointing priests and temple officials from reliable army men. The populace could thus resume the public worship of their gods. In all this, he probably did only carry on the policy of his two predecessors. He also usurped all the monuments they had erected as apostates of the Aten religion, and excluded their names from the official king lists, so that on them, Harem Hab appears as the immediate successor of Amenophis III. Stonemasons were sent throughout the land, continuing the restoration work that Tutankhamun had started and raised to the ground by the Nephilim monuments of Akhenaten. The city of Akhetaten was visited and its buildings demolished, and the stone carted off for use elsewhere. The royal tombs in the central wadi were wrecked, its funeral furniture was smashed, 
even such solid objects as stone canopic chests and sarcophagi, and the reliefs were hacked out of the walls. Similar destruction was wrought in the tomb chapels of Akhenaten's adherents, so that one of the most recent writers on the period, with an excellent melodramatic turn of phrase, has called this imputed vindictiveness the vengeance of Harim Harb. The vast temple of the Aten at Karnak was also dismantled, and its scores of thousands of stone blocks were used as foundations and fill for three pylons and other works in the Temple of Amun. All effort was made to wipe out any mention of Akhenaten, who, if a reference, was unavoidable. 